in South Africa, I fought against a dictatorial government. Uh -huh. In psychology, I fought against dictatorial cognitive therapy. Oh, interesting. Hello, thank you for joining us today. It is my great honor and pleasure to have on my uh, on my show today, Dr. Leslie Greenberg. He is a distinguished research professor emeritus at York University in Toronto, Ontario. He is the former director of the York, the York University Psychotherapy Research Clinic and one of the world's leading authorities on working with emotions in psychotherapy. Dr. Greenberg is among the primary developers of emotion-focused therapy, or EFT, uh, for individuals and for couples. He is a founder of the Society of the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration and a past president of the Society for Psychotherapy Research. Dr. Greenberg is on the editorial board of many psychotherapy journals, and his integrative work is celebrated by practitioners from diverse camps, including cognitive behavioral, psychodynamic, interpersonal, and solution-focused. Dr. Greenberg's professional publications include over 100 peer-reviewed papers, over 100 book chapters, and 20 books. Dr. Greenberg received the 2004 Distinguished Research Career Award of the International Society for Psychotherapy Research, of which he was a past president. He was awarded the Canadian Psychological Association Professional Award for Distinguished Contribution to Psychology as a Profession and the Carl Rogers and Distinguished Professional Contributions to Applied Research of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you and uh, I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you. Um, if you could, can I just, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about your background and your initial, where did, where did you first start to become interested in psychology? Well, I'm from South Africa originally, okay. and I was an engineer. Oh. So I, the story I like to tell is became interested in psychology with a group of friends of mine because of our girlfriends. <laughs> we try to understand, how, which ultimately was really trying to understand ourselves. Hmm. Um, I was an engineering, mechanical engineer, aiming towards being a nuclear engineer. Oh. And my two friends were in medical school and became doctors. But we used to meet and talk a lot, which was unusual for a young man at that stage. And I think that's really where a lot of this developed. Mm. But my girlfriend, my then-to-be my wife, was in psychology. Okay. And South Africa, you may or may not know, had Wolpe and Lazarus, the original behavior therapists, mm. were at the university at which I studied called the University of, of the Witwatersrand. That means the white water rand is a kind of mountain range. Um, so she was being schooled in behavior therapy. Meanwhile, I was reading existential philosophy. So I was an unusual engineer. Oh. <laughs> and my interest really was in philosophy and trying to understand 
the meaning of life. So I think I was searching for meaning. Mm. Um, and I just knew that I thought behaviorism was terribly oversimplified. And I thought psychoanalytic thinking was very dark and pathological and mm. didn't appeal to me. So I was interested in existential thinking mm. and was reading Camus and Sartre and things like that. So, I mean, those were the original kinds of interests. Uh-huh. And um, one of the funny stories I tell is I've became an engineer because I was interested in working with people. Now that seems like a contradiction. In terms. <laughs> I wanted to become a nuclear physicist. This was the 1960s and nuclear physics was sort of like the very sexy thing. And I wanted to become a nuclear physicist. I went to a guidance counselor and um I also was interested in student leadership. I had been head prefect at my school, which is in the British system. And so I was sort of in uh, leadership positions. And they said to me, well, if you like working with people, you should rather be a nuclear engineer because engineers work more with people, Uh backroom scientists. I see. That's really how I got into engineering. (laughs) Because I hated machines, uh, but I liked, I loved math and physics. Uh, um, so actually, I started off as an engineer. I had a master's degree in engineering before I shifted into psychology. Okay. The you mentioned a few things there. I'm curious about. So you said like you and your group of guy friends would get together and kind of talk, and that's how a lot of this developed. It makes me think of. People like um, people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and like a lot of a lot of these people always had like groups of guy friends and they had little clubs and they would get together and drink beers and talk. And I think that's really cool. And I think it is kind of lost. Is that kind of was it kind of like a group like that for you guys? And you guys talked about well, philosophy it, it, and- it was it was, you know, that's really interesting. It wasn't drink beers. It was get stoned. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, and. Both my friends ended up becoming, they, they were musicians, oh. played jazz. I was unmusical, but we would get together. And I mean, that's not, that wasn't the talking part though. That mm. was the sort of creative part. And mm. they would play music and mm. I would try to write poetry or paint on the wall Uh we were sort of experimenting we were young and i mean south africa was a terrible place politically Mm. so there was also a whole political context and i was quite involved in fighting against the government and Mm. so but we in the non-stoned part Uh talk about our relationships with our girlfriends Mm. and we would listen to each other. So the big thing was that we developed some kind of empathic way Mm. relating. And this is my reconstruction, you know, exactly what it was. I don't know, but 
I know then when I came into psychology and I discovered my mentor was Laura Rice, who had been a student of Carl Rogers, and she taught and practiced empathy. And it was like she was putting words to and articulating this thing that I had found so helpful that we had people to talk to who uh, these friends mm. understood uh, each other. We accepted each other unconditionally. And that was sort of the most important base, really. Mm. Uh-huh. Okay. And what, what is it that got you? When do you remember your first interest in studying like existentialist and existentialism and philosophy and reading Sartre and stuff like that? You know, that's an interesting question, one that I've never actually thought about. When did I start? Wow. Wow. I remember also reading Colin Wilson, The Outsider. Hmm. Um, so there was something about being in a, a such a troubled society hmm. and sort of not believing in the dominant propaganda. Uh -huh. I was sort of outside, but I was also very socially outside because partly because of that, but also not fitting into, I mean, I grew up in Johannesburg. I was Jewish. My friends were Jewish. There was this high, very high achievement emphasis hmm. and very upwardly mobile emphasis. And I looked down on that. So the word authenticity was very important to me. And I was re, I guess I was reading so I must have been about, we graduated fairly early from high school. I was 16, just turning 17. Hmm. I was already reading then. Wow. And I have a diary that I still have hmm. from when I was 16 years old. And I was writing about being authentic. And also I have a very interesting I was an engineer, but I have a diagram with a curve and a sine wave like that mm. and a flat line. And I wrote, I'd far rather live on this flat line than suffer the ups and downs huh. of uh, <laughs> the vagaries of life. And I was maybe 16 then or 17. And so I was looking for stability in my mm. life. Uh-huh. Interesting. I had a family that suffered external crises, financial, and a lot of uprooting. And so I was seeking some kind of emotional stability. Mm. It's interesting because um, with with what I know about existentialism, you, you talked about psychoanalytic thinking seeming kind of dark, um, but it, a lot of the existentialists, don't they say that life is basically meaningless and, uh, or it's what you construct? I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's true, but, but it's not like you're pathologically rooted in your past. 
So, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of dark. Uh-huh. Life itself is meaningless. Uh-huh. You have choice and you are what you do, mm. your, your project. So there was hope and possibility. Mm. You see, I think also the thing is I was an atheist from probably about 10 years old or 11 years old. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, so there was no God. Yeah. And, of course, the existentialists were writing about that. Yeah. It was a search for meaning was the real issue for me. Uh-huh. Actually, there's probably uh, someone you don't, may not know, but Glasser wrote Reality Therapy. Oh, I, I have that book, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> oh, really, really, yeah. Well, in retrospect, it's a kind of behavioral existential but that was the very first psychology book that I read. Oh. I sort of liked the idea that you have choice mm. and what you choose is makes you who you are. Mm. I subsequently came not to like him very much. Oh, really? I mean, I've sort of, you know, didn't really go back into it, but but also writing, reading Camus and Colin Wilson, um, who wrote this book, The Outsiders, was very important in my sort of development. Mm. And sort. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you, you becoming a therapist and working, working with individuals to help them, is that where you found would you say you found your meaning ultimately? Are you still searching? Actually, not exactly. You know, I think there are two motivations that go into becoming a psychotherapist mm. academic. The one is the investigative uh-huh. um, uh, motivation, and the other is the helping motivation, right? Mm. Helping others and helping yourself, right? Uh-huh. I was more interested in the investigative. Mm. but also in working with people. But so my main motivation has been curiosity and discovery. Mm. He was wanting to understand, but at the same time, it was also wanting to help people and um, be a, yeah, I guess be a facilitator of other Mm. people. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what you what you ultimately found? Would you say like uh, for you, meaning was was it like adopting responsibility? Was it what, what was like meaning? Where did you find your meaning? Well, at first, I took meaning to be um, sort of like narrative meaning, uh-huh. uh, but. Through Gestalt therapy and my whole humanistic, I came to understand meaning as smelling the roses. Mm. So being in the present and having a meaningful contact and excitement and meaning in what you're doing in the moment rather mm. than the story of, of what my meaning is. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you 
Did you go to school to become, were you on your way to become a nuclear engineer and then you, and then you got into psychology? Did you ever, yeah, what was that part? Well, it was concomitant along with uh, leaving South Africa and coming, okay. and coming to Canada. So I came to Canada and I did a master's degree and I was trying to veer my engineering now. I gave up nuclear idea. Oh. I got a scholarship to go to a number of countries to do nuclear engineering, but I didn't take it. Oh. I was trying, I was quite involved in uh, anti-apartheid politics in South Africa. Mm. I became all socially active and on student uh, political kind of activities. Mm -hmm. I was seeking a way out of engineering. Uh, and I thought of going into what was called industrial engineering or operations research. But, uh, and I applied for a program at Stanford called Engineering Economic Systems, mm -hmm. which about going back to Africa to work with a sort of more, um, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it oh. um, because I was very unhappy in engineering and I was just seeking greater relevance. And this was the time of, uh, you know, exploring inner space rather than exploring outer space. Uh -huh. It was the height of the sort of hippie period and, uh, so I became, it became much more um, respected or respectable to become a psychologist. Oh. In South Africa, becoming a psychologist was a non-viable profession, really. Hmm. I still had some middle-class kind of background where I had to become a professional of some kind. or, hmm. um, <laughs> But so... It was in coming to Canada, finishing my master's degree, I applied for a number of PhD programs in engineering, but I just couldn't accept them. Uh, and I decided to drop out. With my, I was married now with my wife, who was a psychologist, uh, <laughs> undergraduate psychology degree, and we were going to drop out and go to India. Because oh. this was the time Beatles went in <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I was quite uh, torn. I mean, it was uh, not an easy time. I was giving up engineering. I didn't mm. know what I was going to do. I explored different possibilities, including politics, sociology, um, and even business administration and MBA. Um, and, uh, so we decided we were going to take a year off and go to India. Hmm. And then there's this amazing story of a colleague of mine. I was at a place called Hamilton, which is about 100 kilometers, 60 miles or so from Toronto. Hmm. Um, and I, my colleague said, they've got a big new computer at York University. Does anyone want to come with me to use this computer? So through my wife, I had heard that there was this woman, Laura Rice, at York University, who believed that curiosity 
was the kind of driving force uh, in human motivation and in psychotherapy. I didn't know a lot about psychotherapy, Hmm. Um, but I see... I had called around to find out what I would have to do to get into psychology. I knew something about psychology from my wife and um, they told me I'd have to start and do a BA again and it would Uh. take three years and things like that. So I decided I wasn't ready to do that until we were going to go to India. But so I went with this friend of mine and went to York University this was the 10th of August. <laughs> it stayed uh-huh. emblazoned in uh-huh. my mind. Uh-huh. And I knocked on the door of this Laura Rice, and she had just come up from University of Chicago. There were a number of people who, they weren't draft dodgers, but they were protesting against the American uh, in Vietnam War and so uh-huh. on and left University of Chicago and come to York University, which is sort of like a new university in Canada. Mm. I knocked on her door and she happened to be in the office. Mm. Ten ten days later, I was accepted into a PhD program (laughs) with doing doing a one-year makeup in psychology. Wow. Well, well, what did the conversation go like? Why? How did that? How did you swing that? Um, well, I had very good grades, you know. Okay. So, I mean, so there was also um, the University of Minnesota had been this uh, very sort of scientifically based uh, uh, approach to psychology, mm. and the head of the psychology department was a Minnesota graduate where they used to accept people with masters in science. So they thought, well, you know, he's really scientifically and mathematically based. And the thing is, Laura Rice was interested in doing a stochastic analysis of moment by moment interaction. And I had the sort of mathematical skills. Uh-huh. So she was interested in me. Uh-huh. And there was somebody else there who was starting a, um, I can't even remember, but like a management based uh, psychology. Hmm. Uh, and because I was an engineer, so I went in and I was accepted into the doctorate in counseling. I chose counseling psychology because I thought I work with normal people. (laughs) Clinical was with, you know, people. So I went into counseling psychology, which eventually became amalgamated. When I was there, it became amalgamated with clinical and the distinction was removed. (laughs) So... It was fortunate that there had been this head of the department who came from this scientifically based program. Yeah. And it was a new university, so they didn't have a lot of bureaucracy. And so I didn't go to India. And like 10 days later, I was, we moved to Toronto and I started <laughs> in the what psychology. Is- what did your wife think of that? She was uh, supportive. She was Good. supportive of that, right? 
<laughs> so, uh, and then the big issue is I never had an intuitive gut feeling for engineering. Hmm. I knew my colleagues, they could sort of, I mean, to use this as a, an analogy, not for real, but they could look at a bridge and they could sense where it needed support and structure. Hmm. I could only mathematically calculate that. Uh -huh. I had no gut feeling. But uh -huh. as soon as I came into psychology, I just had this gut feeling of this, you know, and I really thrived. I mean, I, I, I didn't really like the one-year makeup, you know, doing psychology 101 and things yeah. like that. <laughs> it was relatively easy. Uh -huh. But I also went into a fourth-year counseling class with Laura Rice, and that was just like, this is it. This is the thing that really speaks to me. Oh, wow. That's really neat. Yeah. And you, and so you were trained uh, primarily kind of like of a person-centered or Rogerian therapy? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and then, yeah, what did your early career look like? Or when did you kind of, I know you read, you talked about reading gestalt therapy maybe getting into that too like what did you once you graduated from the program what were your next steps well firstly i talk about i was probably one of the few people who was introduced to gestalt therapy through reading a book oh. <laughs> so actually in laura rice's class she introduced us to gestalt therapy because hmm. uh, there was some similarity the subtitle of the main Gestalt therapy book was excitement and growth in the personality. Oh. Something of like how to activate the excitement and curiosity in oh. people and the notion of a growth tendency. So I was very uh, attracted to that. Mm -hmm. And then while I was at York University, uh, a Gestalt therapy training institute started in Toronto, run by a, a Dr. Harvey Friedman, who was a psychiatrist. And he had studied with Pearls and was going to go and run the Gestalt Institute of Canada with Pearls, and then Pearls mm -hmm. died. So he started it here. And so I joined that training. So while I was still doing my PhD at York and doing research on how do people change? Essentially, I was also in the Gestalt training. So I became very involved in research on how did people change. And the first book we wrote was called Patterns of Change. Oh. Um, and this was with Laura Rice. Um, and can I, can I interrupt for a second? Please. That please. reminds me, I also, I had the, the pleasure of speaking with Dr. George Silvershots with the San Francisco Psychotherapy Research Center. Um, and I know he said he's always been very interested in like what makes psychotherapy work. Um, and he tries to do like very detailed analysis of what, what happens in psychotherapy that, that, that perpetuates change. Yes. Does, do you guys have any crossover? Like, Oh yes. Yes. I huh. know. Him. But, you know, we only met later through the Society of Psychotherapy Research. Okay. You know, he's one of the people whose research and views are very similar oh. to mine. Uh, 
Oh. And um, I don't know when I first, in 1991, uh, I went to San Francisco oh. a year, my first sabbatical, and I met him and oh. had some actual contact with him and the institute that he was working with. Mm. And um, also the group that he belonged to wrote a chapter for one of the books that I edited. So yeah, there's definitely been oh. crossover. Okay. Neat. Uh, what have you found as far as curiosity goes? Cause I'm also, I consider myself a very curious person and uh, I'm also interested in curiosity. So what have you found how to like, is that something that you can draw out of people in therapy and does that, perpetuate change or whatever yeah what has your main findings been <laughs> i think you know it translates into exploration okay and to somehow create in therapy an exploratory um, environment mm. and as the therapist to be curious which also implies non-judgmental mm. um, and so it's trying to help people become curious to explore their own experience. Now, Laura Rice had developed um, a client vocal quality scale with these four different voices. Oh. One voice is called focused voice. And that's when you're sort of the clinical pictures, your eyeballs are turned inwards and you're searching to create meaning from your experience. Jenlin, mm. Developed experiential psychotherapy talked about focusing. We suggest you close your eyes and go inside and pay attention to what you feel inside. Mm. So, two of them were working both uh, with Rogers in Chicago. They were chasing this idea that there's a way of processing your experience to create new meaning, and that this is the exploratory kind of stance. Mm to people who talk at you, talk about things, looking uh -huh. from something. So I think, you know, that's where the curiosity sort of an exploration mm. uh, plays a very important role in any therapy. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you were, you were getting training in gestalt therapy while you were in university and then uh yeah right. and, then, and then i reached a sort of a choice point which was to stay in toronto and try to run a clinic in mm. a gestalt clinic out of the gestalt institute but i really wanted to become an academic huh. so i took that job and i always had this tension between research and practice mm. and ultimately i think some of my strength is integrating those two mm. um so then i i accepted a job at the university of british columbia in the department of counseling uh, it was in a faculty of education and at first it wasn't even a department of counseling psychology it was a department mm counseling it eventually became a department of counseling psychology 
Um, and I was there for 12 years oh. and really did a lot of training of, this was not a highly academic, it was a more applied. Okay. Coming in, getting their master's degrees and going back out and being counselors. Uh-huh. Um, but it allowed me the sort of freedom to just develop my own hmm. path, so to speak. You know? uh-huh. And that's where I started. The big thing was in my doctoral dissertation, along with my mentors, I had developed this research approach called task analysis, mm. where you actually study the actual performance, you know, and this is a little bit like what George would be talking about in a different way. But this was before qualitative research had become popular. But so I was studying how do people solve problems, particularly in the using the two-chair dialogue. And I was also reading about emotion. I mean, by that time and through my experience, I thought and saw that emotion was the central element of human experience and of change. So I was sort of off at UBC and I was sort of free because I wasn't in a strong scientifically based or pseudo-scientifically based because I regard a lot of psychology as not really scientific. Um, But, you know, there are a lot of political and other pressures to sort of toe the line or fit into the mainstream. Uh And one of the interesting things I like to talk about was in 1974, while I was still a doctoral student, I read this book called Cognitive Therapy, and I threw the book away. <laughs> I thought this is so simplistic. <laughs> was it was it by Beck? Yeah, it was Beck's first book or oh. second book, right? <clears throat> and I would never have predicted. <laughs> and I still think, you know, that it's it's not a deep mm. psychotherapeutic approach. Mm. But I would never have predicted the change that it would have produced. Uh-huh. Um, and in some way, cognitive therapy is an important uh, influence in the development of emotion-focused therapy. Oh. In South Africa, I fought against a dictatorial government. Uh-huh. In psychology, I fought against the dictatorial cognitive therapy. Oh, interesting. Um, and some of my personality is just sort of uh-huh. right against what's, but not in a destructive way, I, I would say myself, <laughs> in a constructive manner, you know, to sort of see what's wrong with the, the dominant narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because at first we didn't set out to s- develop a psychotherapy. We were interested in studying how do people change. Mm, uh-huh. But eventually it became because of the dominance of cognitive therapy and its theory of human functioning, huh. 
became important in my view to develop uh, another voice, another, mm. another narrative. Very interesting. How how was um how was your how was emotion focused therapy initially received? Um, I know that in that time you're talking about the dominant voice was this cognitive therapy. And out of that, you kind of saw the need to kind of develop your own, like kind of develop what you saw was the, the proper maybe mode. Um, so you're already fighting against the dominant voice, which causes maybe not as well known voices to not be heard so well because you're competing against. So yeah. How is it received in light of, in light of cognitive therapy being the dominant voice at the time? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't well received at all. Mm. Um, and it was interesting. So, I mean, firstly, in the 1970s, when I was a doctoral student, the dominant uh, narrative was client-centered therapy. Okay. It, uh, the core conditions of therapy had been found, empathy, respect, and genuineness, huh. and so on. And then I saw the collapse of that, both uh, scientifically and also um, theoretically, right? Hmm. Um, so I actually grew up at first in the dominant narrative at the time, uh, in a very strongly supported narrative, uh, and slowly that sort of fell apart. And then we were just identified as research-based therapy, um, and I was sort of invested in research, but I was also proposing a whole different type of research task analysis, not randomized clinical trials. Uh -huh. um, so my initial research publications all got rejected. <laughs> I fought, but they were, they were just sufficiently different and they weren't in the dominant narrative. Mm. They got rejected and I had help from more senior mentors that you could write back and challenge the decisions. So everything was a struggle. Mm. And a, a metaphor by which I have lived, not by choice, well, who knows, you know, is a struggle. Mm. Um, but in 1986, I wrote the book Emotion in Psychotherapy. And that was interesting because it was both not very well accepted, but it also made an impact. Huh. And I was sort of trying to, in retrospect, the effect it had was that it made intellectually palatable what before had been experientially uh, known, but people who have PhDs need to understand and somebody once came up to me, a cognitive therapist, and he said, your book, your reading your book has really helped me understand how emotion is important. Uh -huh. Many people understand how emotion is important from a more experiential way. Yeah. So I was sort of on the path to sort of intellectually um, explain how emotion works 
in therapy and things like that. Mm. So it began to make some impact. But the big thing was I had a student, Sue Johnson, who did her dissertation on the couples therapy. I, I went to uh, Palo Alto and San Francisco for a year on sabbatical and really studied with uh, systemic people uh, and then developed the couples therapy. Okay. And then Sue Johnson was my student and she did her dissertation and she was a very um, ambitious and, uh, uh, you know, really knew how to apply herself. Mm. She did quite a big study in which we compared an emotion focused couples, emotionally focused couples therapy with a cognitive behavioral therapy and showed that it did better. Oh. An outcome study. And I'd always been opposed to outcome studies. Um, but then I saw the big impact that that made. Oh. Immediately it got a lot of attention, right? Oh. So that sort of persuaded me that randomized clinical trials were a political tool mm. and that uh, I subsequently then did an outcome study on individual therapy. Uh, but it was that where I saw how much attention we got by doing an outcome study. So I see it as simply a rhetorical medium. It's not scientific. Uh-huh. It's rhetorical. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's, semi-scientific, but it's really not uh, um, a path to the truth. Yeah. And so did you said you saw that it was political. Um, and there's like, I'm, I, I assume the science part of yourself was saying, I don't want to do these. But then the, the part of yourself that it's like, well, this is political. And if I do this, it'll drive the attention. Um, yeah, were you okay with with doing it, knowing that it was merely political? Well, you know, it's always been a struggle. Uh-huh. I've clearly been ambitious and wanted to get attention. Uh-huh. Well, you know, to make an impact. Yeah, yeah. Also always been really curious and more intrinsically uh, an investigator. Uh-huh. So the way I rationalized it or reframed it was, and this was with the help of somebody who was at NIMH at that time, was that um, you really first have to show that something's effective Mm. before you study what made it effective. So that doing an outcome was just um, providing this sort of rough framework of a house Uh, I'm making up this metaphor in the moment. I don't know if it'll work. And then uh, it gives you material to look at how did the people who changed, changed. Mm. It became a kind of um, means to an end. Right, Doing the outcome study gave you material to really study. Uh, And then I eventually got an NIMH grant. Okay. Study. Uh, individual therapy um, and it was an outcome study but really gave us material to look at how do people change Mm -hmm. that was my next question is 
I know, I forget, I've read it somewhere about cognitive behavioral therapy receiving, uh, you know, a lot of funding and that they've been able to do a lot of what they've been able to do because of the funding. And I think with um, modern psychoanalysts, they're, they were, they were behind the game when, when it comes to research. And then when it comes to research, it's more difficult to research some of the things that they're doing, but also they don't have as much funding or something like that. Um, Absolutely. And, okay. right. I mean, when I say it's political, uh-huh. it's the politics. The politics is funding. Mm. Um, and it's also like the simpler you are and the more you control the narrative, uh-huh the more you can do simple-minded sort of research. Uh Because, I mean, I wrote a paper somewhere where I showed how cognitive therapy set the the bar of what was scientific. Mm. The first studies had an N of 12 or 16. Uh And that that was a cognitive therapy study. Uh And when they started... And then because it showed to be effective on, you know, fairly you manualized because it's simple and you can manualize it. And when they started getting money and they did studies of 36, then 36 became the gold standard. Mm. Mm -hmm. Each time it's supported by more sort of statistical rationales of power. Then when they elevated and had a manual then to be scientific you had to have a manual so they were always setting the goalpost mm. with what they'd already achieved and it was harder for other people to fit there to get funded so i mean the big coup was that i got funded uh-huh. imh but it took i mean it takes many people three tries you know mm. uh, But then we weren't able to get funded subsequently Mm. um, because I couldn't run studies with, you know, 50 clients in each treatment. And, but yeah, I mean, the funding is crucial, Mm. the funding and the journals. So the cognitive behaviors control the journals, they control (sighs) the They're on all the research uh, evaluation committees. And I believe they really don't recognize that they are um, biased, essentially. I mean, they think they're being scientific. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think this would be a good time. Can you... um... Can you give us an overview of emotion focused therapy and and what how you came to view how psychotherapy works and emotions being the central piece? Well, you know, I really think the relationship plus emotion are the two central pieces. Okay. So, I mean, I started off with this appreciation that this the relationship is crucial. Mm. That somehow being understood and accompanied by another person in a non-judgmental way is a very healing experience. Mm. And I think that had come from my adolescence and late adolescence sort of 
experience with my friends, but then oh, yeah. observing it in practice and articulating it. Uh, but then I think in Gestalt therapy, I saw that when people were very emotionally engaged, um, that whatever happened had more impact on them mm. than when they were, you know, compared to intellectualizing or uh -huh. talking about. So, I mean, those were very primitive observations, I guess. Then uh -huh. I saw this chair dialogue being an effective way of activating emotion, just getting deeper into mm. people's real um, experience. Um, and I have these two stories. When I um, was leaving South Africa, I was a computational engineer, let's say I was working with uh, computational algorithms. And so I made up this big chart of, to help me try to decide where to go. Mm. Um, and I, being a South African, the weather was very important. <laughs> so there was England, Canada, the States. I didn't have Australia. Then there were different universities and I ranked the, the status of each university and the amount of money. And then I weighted you know, that weather was more important than, let's say, status of the university, the status of the university was more important than money and so on and so forth. And I did this whole rational computation and it came out with a result and Canada was the lowest, <laughs> the, the computation. And immediately I said, I'm going to Canada. <laughs> And this was an example of that you know more than you can say, that there's a gut feeling that guides choice and decision-making that knows more than your rational computation. And I was reading Polanyi, who was a Nobel Prize chemist who became a philosopher. And he had written this book called Personal Knowledge and then Tacit Knowledge. And I was very taken with that I knew more than I could say. And in my final engineering exam, I had solved a math problem that no one else in the class solved. And I didn't know how I knew how to solve it. But some aspect of me chose a certain path to solve it, and, so, and I solved it. So that was another sort of very primary experience of that I know more than I can say. Mm. So I came in to psychology, and when I even met with Laura Rice, you know, they asked me why well, I said, I'm interested in this gut feeling. And there was somebody at the university who was studying intuition. And so they also linked me up with him. Oh, interesting. But so that was sort of a, a guiding principle before I was even in uh, uh -huh. psychology. Uh -huh. And there was the relationship. And then I was following this notion of knowing more than you could say. And so then I started reading on emotion. And there were only two or three books on emotion at the time <laughs> of psychology. Wow. Uh, um, 
So I just started reading on emotion. And I, then I was observing tapes, a lot of tapes, videotapes of therapy sessions. Mm. See that when people got more emotionally aroused, they did better. Mm. And then there had already been developed this depth of experiencing adrenaline, which was a primary process measure. And experiencing was this ability to turn in and make meaning from your experience, which was different to arousal, but they were all related to a sort of more emotionally based way of being. Mm -hmm. And I guess my own personal life experience was that I knew that my emotions somehow influenced my decisions and what I thought and what I believed. Mm and then I just started studying process. I was a process researcher, not an outcome researcher. Uh-huh. And I just kept seeing that when people got more deeply emotionally involved, they did better. Mm. Emotion is really a, a sign of involvement. Mm. And then, you know, eventually the dysregulated emotion coming from more severe populations and dialectical behavior therapy. You know, the whole cognitive therapy movement moved towards emotion dysregulation. Uh-huh. It's much more an emotion activation. Mm. In, then it became, how do you distinguish the different kinds of emotion? It was such a primitive dialogue. It's like, is emotion good or is emotion bad? But You've got to ask which emotion, when, how, what. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And what is it starving? And... Mm. Yeah. So, you know, it, I mean, I'm interested in understanding how I got to where I am. And <laughs> really, I don't really know, you know. Uh, I mean, in terms of my own... Yeah on emotion and what exactly was it that uh, made me think what I think, but. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it, I, I find it interesting. I believe Carl Rogers when, cause he was coming up through like the psychoanalytic times and then he switched over to thinking like believing that it was, you know, empathy and uh, authenticity and, um, I forget the third one. <laughs> it was uh, the regard or yeah. There we go. Positive, unconditional, yeah. positive regard. It uh, was those, and he came up with the you know his the person centered approach. And I heard he got a lot of backlash, and he was like ousted and for a while. And then, so it's it's kind of interesting the the parallel in some sense. Do you know you got the Carl Rogers Award? Do you know what that what that? I don't know what that signifies. Well, that comes from the division of humanistic psychology in APA. It's just, you know, it goes to people who have made a contribution to the development of Mm. humanistic uh, psychology. Yeah. How is that study like coming up in in Rogerian therapy and then getting an award? Yeah, I mean, the awards were... I mean, my metaphor was one of a struggle. Mm-hmm. The meaningful award was really the APA award for contribution to professional yeah. 
psychology. That's the sort of highest status award. Okay. It was very meaningful. Yeah. Um, and I despise awards <laughs> because I think they promote too much uh, mm. uh, uh, image management. You know, they're in the domain of image. But, mm. I mean, it was very meaningful as a recognition. Yeah. Because I do feel that I struggled a lot to get a voice heard, get my voice heard. Uh -huh. Not I don't just my voice, but the voice of the sort of experiential humanistic perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, I had a, I had a question here about emotion focused therapy. I was reading kind of in preparation for this. I was reading the, um, the book, Emotion Focused Therapy, uh, Coaching Clients to Work uh, through, their, through Their Emotions. Right. And um, I, I saw, I didn't realize until just recently, I saw you've also written one uh, for clients with depression. Um, but in the book, it was talking about, let's see. It was talking about... Um, the phase where you said pay attention to it, which is the core painful emotion rather than avoid control or cancel it. And I think this is where with the client, you would have them, you've, you've arrived and now they're, they're accepting and they have full awareness of their emotion. And this is where you, um, you talk about the emotion and whether they should um, like mourn, mourn a loss or become angry at, uh, like a healthful anger or, and um, I was just think I was thinking when it comes to their emotion and then asking them like, what is it that you need? Uh, or what is it? Yeah. If they're, if their emotion, if they're feeling like hopelessness, um, can you kind of give me an example of if you have a client that's feeling hopeless and that's their core, that's like their emotion that they are most aware of. And you kind of, how do you direct them? You talk about coaching. I think that's, very interesting and a neat mm -hmm. um how do you coach them toward or away from hopelessness maybe yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, understand. I understand um well firstly you have to understand that hopelessness is a secondary symptomatic emotion okay not the primary feeling why is someone feeling hopeless they're feeling hopeless because some more core painful process and unmet need mm. are uh, have not been met so often in depression un underlying this hopelessness will get to i feel like i'm a failure uh -huh. or i feel like i'm unlovable let's just say okay there's a core feeling of shame or a core feeling of uh, the, you can call it the sadness of lonely abandonment or the insecurity of lack of attachment. Mm. So what, so hopelessness is a secondary symptom. So first you have to explore, arrive at uh -huh. core underlying emotion. So then the, the big question becomes, well, how do you shift from hopelessness to say core 
unlovable, unlovableness. Mm. Right? And then in the unlovableness, there's I need to feel somebody cares about me, but I've never got it. I'll never be able to get it. And so I feel hopeless. Uh -huh. right? Got it. Yeah. This is a reaction to the unmet need in the core painful emotion. Mm. So now how you get from hopelessness to the core shame, you know, is one of the big questions. Mm. That's where a safe environment, a caring other who's empathic and internal attention to your core emotionally felt experience, mm. you people, and you see this on tape, people move from hopelessness to something else. Mm to something deeper through an exploratory process. Okay. And, you know, when we say coaching, it's very important that it's very gentle, one step ahead coaching, not the mm. kick pants coaching, right? Uh -huh. So it's sort of just like guiding your emotional processing by saying, you know, what's it like inside as you sit here now? Or mm. maybe conjecturing and saying, I imagine that left you just feeling so embarrassed or humiliated. Mm. Slowly that helps the person focus on their primary feeling. Mm. And then once you're in the core primary painful state, You've arrived at it. You have to arrive at a place before you can leave it. Oh. But now it's not just accepting it. There's, you know, out of cognitive behavioral, there's developed this acceptance and commitment therapy. There, uh -huh. the notion is accept what you are and then just do it. That's like reality therapy. Mm. Accept that you're anxious and then just anyhow go to the mall and overcome your social anxiety out of the sense of commitment, right? Uh -huh. That's sort of always mind over um, emotion, you know, mind over mood. Mm. Well, I have the opposite view, mood over mind, sort of. Um, so once you're in this core pain, now, as you said, it's like, can we help you deal with this core pain in a new way? rather than getting hopeless and or avoiding it or protecting yourself against it. Can you grieve the loss? Can you feel deserving and angry that you didn't get what you really deserved? Can you feel compassion to yourself mm. for the pain you suffered? And this is, serves as a sort of transformation. And so my most recent book is called Changing Emotion with Emotion. Okay. I mean, that's the big thing that I think my 40 years of research has sort of led me to. Okay. The best way to change an emotion is with another emotion. Interesting. I, I like that because I, um, I was talking with a good friend of mine about, about, People wanna people want to get rid of something, maybe an idea, an ideology. They want to get rid of their religion or whatever it is, but then they don't replace it with anything. And it's just this void. And yeah. you have to replace it. Something's going to replace it. And so 
it's interesting, like the, the idea of you, you want to get rid of this maybe unhealthy emotion and, but you're going to need to replace it with maybe a more healthy or more adaptive emotion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just make this point that I don't think it's replacing. Okay. You know, because behaviorists have adopted this, you know, you replace, I mean, in simple terms, you replace hate with love mm. or sadness with joy. Uh-huh. It's transforming, you know, but let's say if you have an old mm. religion and you uh, leave it, uh-huh. You're never going to totally replace it. What's new will be influenced by what was. Mm. And there's a matter of blending it, mm-hmm. integrating it. So anger changes shame. You don't replace shame with anger because then you'd be angry. <laughs> the anger transforms the shame and you end up with confidence or with compassion or with peace. So the, the, there's really a synthesis that goes on. Yeah. And so this is a, comes from, I had another mentor, a Piagetti, neo-Piagetian, a student of Piaget. Hmm. And there was a whole notion of development is different to learning. In development, a child learns how to walk by synthesizing its pre-existing capacities. Hmm knows how to stand, it knows how to fall. And when you integrate standing and falling, standing and falling, you get mm. working. Uh-huh. It's, it's a development by synthesis of existing capacities. Mm. So it's different to replace. I but see. There is a, re, you know, there is a transformation going on. So I use the term transformation. Oh, okay. I like, yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen you, I've seen a few tapes of you doing uh, therapy and you do this uh, maybe technique where you say like, place your, where is the emotion located? Place your hand there and I'll speak from the emotion. Did you get that from Gestalt therapy or where did you come up with that? No, that that comes from Eugene Jandlin, Jandlin, written about focusing. Okay. He wrote a book called Experiential Psychotherapy. Oh. That that really comes from him. Okay. I think I probably it got assimilated into Gestalt therapy as well, but he's really the one who mm. who articulated that. Mm. And that's just that just aids them in being um, more involved and present and like focus yeah focused on where it is and okay yeah yeah and Please. um okay. A lot has to do with attention. Hmm. Where are people attending? And so when I say coaching, uh-huh. it's like you're guiding their attention and there you're guiding their attention so that they start processing in a different way. Hmm. Okay. You also watching you do therapy or even just talking with you now, you, you have a very calm presentation and style um is that something that that you've developed or is is your temperament naturally you know soothing and calm and (laughs) you know it's a question i am often asked (laughs) um it's one of the great enigmas i don't know exactly 
Um, I don't know how that developed. I mean, some of it comes from the training and so on, but um, it's like a, a puzzle, a puzzle. <laughs> yeah, because. <laughs> and you know, I look like Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. That helps. Of, <laughs> and, and, you know, there are other features that I talk about your facial structure. You know, I have a face that's. It mimics or, or simulates a baby's face, oh. big forehead, eyes, and those faces evoke a feeling. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're, they're different aspects. Uh, mm. But you see, voice is very important. And I mean, my voice is my voice. I mean, I'd, but you learn it through life experience, a way of being. Um, mm. there, Carl Rogers wrote a book called The Way of Being. Oh, yeah. Something about that, you know, and then we've written a book on presence. Yeah, and I was going to I was, I was say, because I've heard, you know, people talk about a therapy voice, and I'm very new at therapy, and I get, sometimes I get kind of excited, and I talk like this, and I'm like, I am not soothing. <laughs> I need to work on my therapy voice, but yeah. Well, you know, the whole essence of what we talked about is, is marker-guided intervention, what you oh. win. So it's really important to have a soothing voice at some particular time, mm. not all the time. Mm. And that's was sort of one of my disagreement with Rogers, which is you have to be empathic all the time. Oh. You need to be empathic when people are vulnerable and disclosing mm. something that is vulnerable but at other times you can do other things and i mean your liveliness or energeticness would con could convey enthusiasm and interest and huh. don't always have to <laughs> it's one it's one of the problems that people learn to use this therapy voice and then it becomes phony hmm. that makes me feel better thank you uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one you know, a lot of the great psychology, a lot of the great psychologists who are also men, like, you know, William James, Freud, you, you got, like, they have nice beards. And I was wondering if that's like a prerequisite or do, do you think <laughs> all psychologists, that the great ones had beards that were men? You know, it's not an observation that I've made that everybody has beards. <laughs> all I can tell you is that I have a beard because I was drafted into the South African army when I was 17 years old. Oh. And I vowed that I would never shave again <laughs> I got out of the army. And I started growing beards of different forms. Oh. And then it was like out of having to shave every day water. Um, so I don't know like, that everybody has a beard. Yeah. 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 Pearls had a beard. Rogers didn't have a beard. Yeah, Rogers, that's true. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I guess it often goes with the artist and things like that, that they have a beard. I see you have a beard. Yeah, I'm working on it. I want to. I want to get mine to yours soon. <laughs> um, what is, what is, so you mentioned your most recent book. Would you say that if you were going to point me in, like, if I had time to read one book and one book only, 
what is maybe your favorite book or the book that you would say, here's. I think for someone starting off the emotion focused therapy, coaching clients to work through their feelings. Okay. Probably the best global introduction. Uh I can't stop at one. And then I would say there's a little yellow book called emotion focused therapy and practice. That's part of a, a series you know, that gives you the whole theoretical overview. Uh-huh. And then the most advanced is this new book, Changing Emotion with Emotion. Okay. I don't think that's initially a book to start off with. Okay. Is that, is this Changing Emotion with Emotion? Is this maybe your favorite? That Like, which one have you written that you're like, that was my best, my best book, my rat, my... I think it's Changing Emotion with Emotion. Okay. Okay. Um... Do you have a favorite book or a favorite author? Um, Well, I mean, in general, not not, uh, professionally. Uh No, I don't actually have a favorite, no. Okay. Uh, I remember growing up that this Colin Wilson was a really important author to me. Colin Wilson. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But I don't now have a favorite, no. What did you think of, you talked earlier about existentialism and finding meaning. What did you think of Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning? Yeah, I mean, that was useful and important, Hmm. but you know, but it's not really telling you how to do therapy, but it's a uh-huh. view of human nature that I think is very important. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's about all of my questions. Right. Right. This has been, uh, yeah, very fun. I really appreciate this. <laughs>